So when you read a mystery novel, you look forward to the end when everything is explained. Other stories don't give you all the answers. Think of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It doesn't come with footnotes, explanations, commentary. It's just a wonderful story. It has great characters. It has wonderful action, the good conquering evil. But the story, they expect the story to speak for itself. The meaning is in what happens in that story. But we know that there are layers beneath the story, the things that happen there. It's like the great lion Aslan sacrificing himself for Narnia. That points to something far beyond what the story itself tells us. I know that you all have been going through the Gospel of Luke, but I'm going to give you a little bit of variety tonight because I'm going to switch over to the Gospel of Mark. Mark tells us about Jesus' life and death, and it's full of action. It doesn't spend a, he doesn't spend a lot of time explaining things. He doesn't spend a lot of time telling us what Jesus said. He expects the story to speak for itself, for the meaning to be in the action of the story. And like Narnia, there are layers beneath those stories, and they point to something far beyond where, what the action is telling us. So tonight, we're going to dig into some of those layers in one of the stories from Mark, and we're going to see where that action points. So let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, and open our eyes and ears to see and hear you tonight. Enlarge our vision of you, O Lord. Enlarge our vision of who you call us to be. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. So, I'm going to give you just a very brief prologue to our story. John baptizes Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus, and he sends him off to the wilderness for a 40-day fasting and temptation class. And then he comes back to civilization. John the Baptist is arrested, and Jesus heads to Galilee, which is about as far away as he could get from those religious and political authorities who were very dangerous. In Galilee, Jesus begins to tell the people, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. He calls some fishermen to be his disciples, and then we come to our story. So, would you please stand with me as I read our passage tonight? It's in Mark 1. I'm going to be reading from 21 to 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. 
He even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. You may be seated. So here's the condensed version of our story. Jesus taught with authority. Jesus showed his authority. And all the people were amazed. You may have noticed that the passage didn't tell us what Jesus taught. It said how he taught and how the people responded to it. Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now, the teachers of the law were the scribes. And in a world where there were few people that were literate, they were the Torah experts. They were the ones who interpreted the Torah and they could make decisions. You might say they were the professors and the civil lawyers of the time. These scribes held very great prestige. They could enter the Sanhedrin with the chief priests. They were always deferred to by the riffraff on the streets. And everyone would rise to their feet when they came into the synagogues. And of course, they took the best seats in the house. So when the scribes taught, they would say, as Moses said, or as Rabbi Muckimuck said. They spoke from authorities about God. But Jesus spoke with authority from God. The Greek for authority is eskousia. And in that time, it usually meant supernatural authority. Mark uses it only for Jesus' authority and the authority he confers on his apostles. No one else shows that kind of authority, not the religious leaders, not the political leaders. It's a really intense word, and we see it again later in the passage. And the people, they're amazed. They're astonished. They're astounded. Not by what he said, but how he said it. There was something about the person of Jesus, the way he spoke, that was qualitatively different than anything that they had ever heard before. And just then, euthus in Greek is translated just then, as soon as, without delay, or immediately, And it seems to be one of Mark's favorite words. Mark uses it 40 times in his gospel and 11 times in this first chapter. Some translations that aren't as literal, they don't even put it in there. They leave it out because it starts to feel really redundant. But its repetition gave us a sense of urgency, of leaning forward into the action. Mark uses it to bring a sense of drivenness to the narrative, to tie things together and to show that movement to the cross is the inevitable conclusion. Euthus, just then, just when Jesus had been speaking in the synagogue with such authority, a man starts yelling, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Many years ago, I was teaching in an adult Sunday school class on the Holy Spirit. And a woman in this class became very disruptive. She claimed that she was the prophetess of Washington. And she was determined to be heard. A friend of mine, who is a lawyer and not somebody to be messed with, 
he gently but firmly steered her out of our class. That's how we responded to an outburst. How would you respond if someone just started yelling here in worship and they're over four or five years old? <laughs> how would you respond? But Jesus, he directly engages. He speaks sternly to that spirit and he tells him, be quiet. Another translation might be, shut up, come out of him. And that spirit doesn't go easily. It says he sends this man into violent convulsions. And with a terrible shriek, that spirit departs. You don't see that every day at church. We don't hear, and they didn't back then. The people in that synagogue were amazed, incredulous. There's a sense of alarm, a mixture of wonder and fear. They ask, what is this? New teaching with such authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. This was news. <laughs> if they had had Facebook back then, it would have been on everybody's posts. It would have been tweeted. It would have been Snapchatted. It would have been Instagrammed. It, would have been, it was the talk all over Galilee. And this is the first miracle that Mark tells us about. John tells us about Jesus turning water into wine. Why would Mark tell us this one first? Remember, Mark uses story, the action, to make his point. He's making clear that there's a new world order has come. There is a new king in town, and no one, no one messes with him. Jesus had preached the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And this, this is the kingdom breaking in. This is what it looks like. The new king has authority. He has power to order evil spirits around, to banish them with a word. Shut up. Come out. And it's gone. Satan and his evil minions, they no longer have dominion. A new king is reigning, and he has power like we've never seen before. Mark's first Miracle dramatically shows that Satan is disarmed. His evil power is routed. This first miracle points exorably towards the cross where that final death blow on evil will fall. Jesus describes this in Mark 3. No one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. That Jesus is robbing the strong man. He has tied him up, he's incapacitated him, and he is robbing him. He has taken what the strong man thought was his, and he's breaking those chains keeping, that are keeping these people in bondage. They were his, but they are no longer. And the evil spirit cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In those days, it was thought that it, by identifying your spiritual opponent, it gave you power over them. It gave you an advantage. It gave you the upper hand. The evil spirit shouts both Jesus' earthly name 
and his divine name, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. The demon recognizes who Jesus is, not the people in the synagogue, not the disciples at this point, but an evil spirit. In the Gospels, those who are sick come to Jesus and address him as Lord, Teacher, Son of David, Master. But the evil spirits, they call Jesus the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. The demons get it. And they recognize his mission. Have you come to destroy us? Yes. <laughs> yes, he has. In the battle between the Holy One of God, which is in capital letters, and evil spirit in small letters, there is no contest. The Holy One has come to destroy the evil spirits, to disarm darkness, disease, and death. This is war, and Jesus is the victor. The Apostle John calls Jesus' miracles signs. Signs give us information. They give direction. The miracles give us information on who Jesus is, what he's about, his mission. In John 3, a wealthy religious man comes to Jesus in secret, and he says, you must be a teacher from God because no one could do what you are doing if God were not with them. The miracles... The miracles show us that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And this particular miracle shows us three more things about who Jesus is and his mission. And that's where we're going tonight. First, it shows us his authority. Mark uses that word, excusia, for Jesus' authority. He showed it not only over the religious elite of his day, he but also the evil spiritual forces. He comes with the authority of God himself. Jesus taught with authority. He acted with authority. He had authority over demons. And later in the Gospels, he has authority over disease, over sin, over nature, over all the powers and principalities. He has excusia. He has excusia, authority over us. Whether we recognize it or not, we have a sovereign. He reigns at the throne, the right hand of God. His reign won't be complete until every tribe and nation bows, but his kingdom, his kingdom is here tonight among us. It's a pearl of great price. It's a treasure in a field. And the, re the appropriate response is reverent wonder, worship, obedience. These are foreign concepts to us in our individualistic and autonomous society. We think of royalty as figureheads. They're just there for archaic traditions and ceremonies. But our king, our king has absolute authority. He doesn't demand our allegiance, but he earns it. And the second thing this miracle shows us about Jesus is he has power. Authority and power don't always go together. You can have authority, but no power to do, really get anything done. Or you can have the power to do something and no authority to get it done. But Jesus has both authority, 
over all creation and infinite power. My utmost for his highest is a devotional by Oswald Chambers. And it's probably been the most formational book in my life, second to the Bible. And last week I read, I have not believed in thine almighty power apart from my finite understanding of it. So often we make God small, we make him finite, we make him manageable, we make him tidy and safe. But I've begun to pray, enlarge my vision of you, O Lord. But I do that with some trepidation. What if he does it? Annie Dillard wondered, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church, which we don't do very often anymore. But the point being, we should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. And the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. It is a fearsome thing to pray, enlarge our vision of you, O Lord. Chambers also wrote about the Samaritan woman at the well who tells Jesus, you have nothing to draw with and the well is so deep. We look down in those dark depths of that well and we kind of shrug, but Jesus looks up and he knows the possibilities are fathomless. Chambers continues, we limit the Holy One by remembering what we have allowed him to do for us in the past and by saying, of course I cannot expect you, expect God to do this thing. The thing that taxes almightiness is the very thing which we as disciples of Jesus ought to believe he will do. We impoverish his ministry We impoverish his ministry the moment we forget he's almighty. Chambers says we look to our own well of incompleteness, our insecurities, our weaknesses. We want to get down in that well and get the water for ourselves, and we think, I have nothing to draw with. And the the well, it's so deep. We think... Our problems may be just a little bit too hard for God to handle. As we look with our finite understanding, our well of incompleteness is deep. But the Holy One of God is almighty. I had a time when my well of incompleteness seemed absolutely bottomless. When I went to Regent College, I was petrified to take the language, the biblical languages, because it had been so excruciating for me to try to learn uh, Spanish when we lived in Mexico when I was an adult. But I did learn that I'm a little bit better at dead languages because you, you don't have to listen. You don't have to understand what people are saying. You don't have to get it out of your mouth. You just have to read it. So I had completed my first term of Hebrew, and I went for the first, I mean, excuse me, I completed the first term, I went to the first week of that second term in January, 
And I was actually due to preach here at Lettered Streets that next week. I didn't make it. The beginning of the second week, I was hospitalized with what they called a severe asthma-type episode. They called it an asthma-type because they tripled the dose of steroids that they would normally give to someone for a critical asthma situation, and they didn't do anything. I survived, but I was ill for many, many months. The heavy steroids that they had given me had just wiped out my adrenal gland, killed my immune system, generally raised all kinds of havoc in my body, as well as the illness that I had. So I emailed my professor for Hebrew, and I explained, you know, I can't drive, I can't be with groups of people, but is there any way, any way that I could do this class? I really did not want to have to wait a full year and get up to speed again and start again. So my professor, he was really gracious, and he said, if you can show me that you learn this stuff, I'll pass you. So a friend took notes in the class and put them in my mailbox up at Regent. Another friend, Seth Dumbach, who many of you know, who's now a pastor in Montana, he would bring those notes from Regent in Vancouver down to Bellingham. I would, uh, <laughs> I would take those notes and I would study them between my naps and my breathing treatments. The prof would email the exams down to our administrator at Bellingham Covenant Church. I would have to have somebody drive me to take the exams at church. because I was too looped from the drugs to drive, but they deemed me safe to write Hebrew exams. <laughs> A friend from Snohomish came up and drove me up to that final class in April so I could have closure. And at graduation, uh, the prof of that class told Mark and I that I had shown that he was irrelevant, which wasn't true. <laughs> it wasn't true. But maybe the absolute biggest miracle is that's the only class at Regent that I got an A+. Don't ask me anything about Hebrew now. Taking it on drugs is not the recommended way to do it. <laughs> But we look at our well of incompleteness. There was nothing in me that said that that could happen. Nothing. But God shines best out of that darkness. The third thing that this miracle tells us about Jesus is that he has compassion. Jesus has absolute authority over all creation, every spiritual and physical dominion. He's almighty. He can do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. And yet, he came as an utterly vulnerable, helpless baby. He came and he lived among us. And he gave up his life on the cross for us. So that we could be free from that power of evil that we could be free of the fear of death, that we could be free to live with him forever. We're not just pawns in some power play between Satan and God. The man with the evil spirit was not just some object lesson. Jesus saw his need and set him free. Jesus cares about what oppresses us. He cares about our pains. He cares about us. 
We don't have to struggle and fight on our own. We aren't stuck in our well of incompleteness. Jesus came to heal, to restore. This isn't just abstract theological knowledge. I have seen, I have seen God's power and his compassion to heal me, to heal relationships, to conquer utter darkness. Jesus, authority, power, compassion. What does this mean for us? Jesus said in his mini-sermon, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. At Bellingham Covenant, we are a little bit heretical. We don't have Ash Wednesday services. We have Ash Sunday. So this morning, as I smeared those ashes on foreheads, I recited the words, remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. Repent. Repent and believe the good news. Know who you are. Repent and believe. Jesus is the king, the king who reigns over all creation. Turn away from your sin. Follow the king and believe, not just in your head, but live what you know to be true. Live out the reality that Jesus has authority over every natural and spiritual power. Jesus has authority over you. Trust in his power. Get your crash helmets ready. And embrace the wonder that he is good and compassionate, that he desires to see you free and whole. Jesus has deep, deep compassion for you, for your family, for your neighbors, for, for all those who have it all together, and for those who might start yelling at church. When people look at the actions of your story, of your life, what will the actions show? Will they show that you truly believe that Jesus has authority, power, and compassion? Let's pray. With fear and trepidation, Lord, we pray that you would enlarge our vision of you. John Newton's hymn says, When I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Help us to see the truth of who you are and to worship you as you deserve, to live as we ought in light of who you are. Enlarge our vision, O Lord, our vision of your authority, of your power, and of your compassion. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.